0: Better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Hi folks, this is Jack Speargo with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view, of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough or even if they don't. Today is July the 7th, 2014. This is episode 1382 of the Survival Podcast. And it is a Monday. Mondays are feedback shows. These are where you send me your emails. You send that email to jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. And you use a formula in the subject line to make it more likely that I will screen it and get you on the air. And that formula is one word followed by two words. The first word is any word you want it to be that describes what you're sending me. The second two words are for Jack, F-O-R space J-A-C-K. So, video for Jack, article for Jack, link for Jack, idea for Jack, question for Jack, comment for Jack. Got it? Do that, and then give me your link and make your point in one or two sentences or ask your question in one or two sentences, and then after that, give me any details you feel that are relevant to the thing. It'll make it a lot easier for me to screen and a lot more likely that I will get you on the air. Uh, not picking on anybody, but sometimes I open an email, and it's like one jumbled block of text. It's like 8,000 words long. I don't usually read those. I try to read every email, at least skim every email that I get. I can't read emails like that. I don't have the time. I get two to 400 emails a day from the audience that are legitimate emails, not spam, not crap, not garbage, legitimate emails. Sometimes they get lost in spam or junk, and sometimes I just end up going through a little bit too fast. and Sometimes I even see, like, oh, I should have read that, and I can't find it in deleted items or whatever. It all depends. But if you follow the formula, you're more likely to get read, screened, and possibly on the air. So with that, let's take care of our housekeeping so we can get on to your feedback, and I've got a lot of it today. Uh, first of all, let's take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day, number one today, BulkAmmo.com. Hey, you know what? You need ammo. You need ammo because this is how it works. I say it all the time, but I'll say it again today. There's a triangle of gun owner gun operator efficiency. It revolves around three things the gun, the ammo, and the operator. Have any one of those three break down, you do not have an effective operation of a gun. And there's no way around it. If you have crappy ammo or no ammo, you've got a real problem. And if you want the operator to be fine-tuned, you need to practice. If you need to practice, you need ammo. You can only do so much with dry fire drills and things like that. You need to get out and actually run some ammo through that gun and get the experience. So you've got to have ammo. You've got to have it in bulk. And if you haven't noticed, when there's some kind of you know, gun grab or move, that's like one of the first things that happens is ammo either dries up or goes into insanity-level prices. So get it while you can. Get it in bulk and get it at bulkammo.com. It's where I buy my bulk ammo. And, where you should too. Next up today, ready made resources. This company is a company that does something I wish more companies did. They say what they do, do what they say, and their name is that. All the resources you need, ready made, ready to go. Point, click, and buy on their website. Everything from the practical to the tactical, gardens to guns, and everything in between, you'll find it at readymaderesources.com. And I do mean everything. Long-term food, they got it. If you want stuff to make your own food into long-term food storage, stuff like Mylar and O2 absorbers and pressure canners and you name it, dehydrators, they got it. You want to do solar and wind projects, they can hook you up with materials. You already are doing that, but you would like to uh, possibly get some appliances in 12-volt, they've got that too. You can think of it, again, practical to tactical uh, guns to Gardens and everything in between, you'll find it at readymaderesources.com, the company that is what it says and says what it does. All right, next up, let's go ahead and remind you guys about the Member Support Brigade. Hey, I just ran a sale. It actually continues to run through today because I launched it late in the week and it was a holiday weekend, and I, all oh, but this is the end. Midnight Central Time, the sale on the Member Support Brigade is done. And there won't be another one till fall, probably late fall. And the discount code is 4July, not F-O-R-July, number 4July. It's a little number 4, J-U-L-Y, all lowercase. That's the discount code. If you use it online, save 15 bucks off your first year, pay with PayPal. If you want to pay by mail, cash check, money order, that type of thing, there is a link at the bottom of the join page where it says pay with cash check, silver. Click on that. So form, you fill it out. Just adjust your price downward and write the, the 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 code on the form and we'll honor it. If you pay with silver, I'll give you more time. It's hard to fractionalize silver that way So um, since I take an ounce a year. So uh, if you pay by silver, I'll just give you some extra months to cover that. If you want to pay by Bitcoin, email me for instructions on how to pay with Bitcoin and get the sale price. You can't get the sale price with the Bitcoin button on the site. It's too much to jack around with for the one or two people that will pay by Bitcoin with the sale. I'll just give you a wallet address. You send the money over. I set your account up or renew it or what have you. All right. With that, uh, again, think about joining the MSB. Help support the show. Discounts to a lot of great companies. Discounts to bulk ammo and ready made resources, for instance. Content available nowhere else. Awesome time to join. Member Support Brigade. Support TSP. Uh, you know, if you think we're worth two dimes an episode, Now it's even cheaper. I'll put it to you that way. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty, and prior service, and first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters, all of you do qualify for a discount all the time. Email me before you join with service discount in the subject line. Send that email to jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Let us now journey to the year that was the episode. And boy, do we have something relevant to today in the history of the past. Wycliffe and his subversive Bible. Last year, Oxford lecturer John Wycliffe released a partial translation of the Bible into Middle English, the language of the people. But one of the leaders in the peasant, of the Peasants' Revolt is a Lollard, a follower of Wycliffe, so an Oxford committee is formed to review John Wycliffe's work and fearing government retribution and God's own wrath Wycliffe is prohibited from lecturing. King Richard II later has him expelled. Copying and distribution of Wycliffe's Bible will continue even through the though the possession of such a Bible is considered heresy. At this time the Bible re, at this time, Bible reading from the Latin is performed by the clergy, and only selected stories or psalms are presented to the public in English. But the usual sense of trust and authority granted to the church is breaking down. Some people want to know what the Bible actually says, and they are willing to risk their necks to find out. My take by Alex Shrug, who puts these together for us over at TSP Wiki. What constitutes a subversive thought? Answer. When a thought causes the authorities to have to work harder to justify what they're doing. Man, Alex, that might be absolutely one of the most insightful things ever said. Subversion to government is anything that makes the authorities have to work harder to justify what they're doing. (laughs) Um, Here's what Alex also has to say about this. Managing intelligent people is like herding cats, because intelligent reasoning people will ask fundamental questions such as, Why are we doing it this way? And the worst question for government officials of all, why are we doing this at all? It would be more efficient if these people would shut up, trust the king, and keep their shoulder to the wheel. But Wycliffe's Bible has put a few key facts into the hands of the masses. How does a leader put that genie back in the bottle? It is done through overwhelming the people with facts and failing to teach the art of reason. Thus, fighting over which facts get printed in Texas school books is beyond the point if the student is not how to evaluate the significance of those facts. This is the basis of our educational system today. The system is being overwhelmed to the point where people are giving up and turning it over to the experts back to a time before Wycliffe. Um, yeah, I mean, that's you, know, you just keep making the simple in, in school more and more complex, claiming that's challenging children to move to a higher level, and, uh, instead of teaching the actual material and then focusing on logic, grammar, and rhetoric, right? I mean, that, that would, that would actually be the way to go. No, what we're gonna do is take a simple math problem with common core, something like 42 minus 13, and turn it into like a 15 line pile of crap that the child really doesn't actually give a damn, because they shouldn't, because all you should do is figure out how to do the dad-gone problem, get the dad-gone answer, and move on with your life. But if we can occupy the mind with a bunch of senseless bullshit, which is what they do in school nowadays, and fail to teach logic and reason, then we can have good little drones that shut up, play their PlayStation into their mid-30s or 40s, instead of build a future for themselves and their families. Gee, I'll tell you what, when you hear your government talk about how they want better schools, if they were Pinocchio, the the, the the talking heads on the TV, their nose would grow with such rapidity that it would protrude through your TV screen and poke your eye out. That's how big they're lying. The schools today are doing exactly what the government and the people that control the government want them to do. Programming people to believe the bullshit of those in power. That's my take by Jack Spirico on our history segment. Uh, and now for something that we kind of slipped away from for a while. Um, the Conflicted Monday. I don't know why I slipped away from it for one week and then it became two. And so now we're going to go back. But... Conflicted Monday works this way. There's a really great game out there called Conflicted. And today I'm reading from Deck 2 in the Conflicted series. And the way it works is there's a whole bunch of cards. Players draw cards. This is how you play it at home. And player reads a card out loud and gives their response to it. Then everybody in the group says what they think about what the player says. Player gets to say their piece last one last time. And everybody else gives the player a score from 1 to 3 where it's actually zero to three. And at the end, you play a certain number of rounds. Whoever has the most points, quote-unquote, wins. It's a really interesting, engaging game. What we do here on the air, since that kind of thing is not practical, is I read a card every Monday, and you guys come to the comments section of the blog and discuss with me and each other what you would do. And then the next week, I tell you what I would do to the last one and give you your new scenario. So here's your new scenario for this week. In a world post-collapse, supplies that aren't replenished eventually run out. But when things calm down to the point where the local economy can start flourishing, what type of vi- business or venture would you like to pursue in order to help rebuild society and take care of your needs? I think this takes a lot of things into it. You need to think about as you're coming up with your response to this. It has to do with what you think would be valuable, but it also has to do with your mindset and your skill level today. And what your mindset and skill level might be like after going through a traumatic societal collapse. Remember, in the scenario conflicted, whether you believe in full breakdown or not, and I am a partial breakdown theorist, I guess would be the right way for it. I don't see the Mad Max end of the world as we know it, dogs and cats having puppy kittens together, uh, you know, rise of the zombies collapse. I see something more akin to the stuff that goes on in, in Glenn Tate's books or something like that. Um, but no matter what you think, and personally, the question is to be answered from the fact that we did have total collapse. And then sometimes, so anyway, you go to the Survival Podcast, pull up lesson, lesson, S- Expo, episode 1382, and just click on the comments section and tell us what you would do post-collapse in reestablishing yourself as a business or a venture, and then there are other questions in the deck that are more philosophical questions. That's what I have for you today. If you could change one thing about the government today, what would it be? How would this change benefit your country and benefit its people? Ooh, I just want to talk, and I can't because I had to wait till next week to tell you what I think on this one. Um, so again, actually, no, that's I got it all backwards. That's last week. see, this is why I shouldn't take a week off. That is last week's conflicted money scenario the The one I just gave you is today, so I can tell you what I would change about government in the past, and wow, I'm all messed up. I guess it's because uh side note here the reason I'm later out today and I'm a little bit discombobulated is I'm like a living like a bachelor till Friday night. Um I decided to send my wife and one of her sisters who have never gotten away together on a vacation, away on a vacation. I can also now go hunting this fall guilt-free. I'm also going to send her and her other sister somewhere else. It's more conducive to what that other sister likes. So anyway, I had to take her to the airport this morning, and now I'm starting to relate. And so I'm going to blame that for screwing the scenarios up. Anyway, so last week's scenario, if you could change one thing about government today, what would it be? How would this change benefit your country and benefits people? This is what I would tell you that if I look at my government today, and I only get to change one thing, then then uh, the thing I can't change is the, is the people that elect these idiots, right? So I, I can't fix that. So because that's not the government, that's us. So there's to actually make the government work the way that it that it needs to work is a, a complex situation. That would need far more than one thing, so I'd have to pick the thing that would sort of kick it in at least in the right direction. And the biggest thing, of course, that I would want to do is limit government. And any place I can think of where government is overstepping its bounds, if I if I limit it there, then they just get worse everywhere else. So if I looked at like NSA wiretapping and stuff like that, and said from now on the government may not, without actual due process, gather intelligence or information on the American people. So they have to get an actual warrant for each case. And it has to be done the way the Constitution says or whatever. There's just like a million ways around that, right? So I have to basically cripple government to make government fall back to doing more of the things it's supposed to. Because if you cripple it, and I'm a, I don't mean take it out, but I just cripple its ability and limit its inherent ability to do everything, it will fall back to doing the things it has to do. Now, it initially it won't. It'll scream and wail and gnash its teeth and say old ladies are going to starve to death and crap like that. But in the end, it will inherently revert to doing what must be done to preserve itself. So I need to cripple it in a way that would universally limit government Everywhere in this country at the federal, state, local level. And this is what I would do. I would make tax on property and income illegal. You, you cannot tax property or income. Anything that a person has gained rightful property to may not be taxed. No property tax, no income tax. I know you're going to say that's two, Jack, but it's really not because my income is my property. Okay, so, so another way to look at it, you may not tax the, 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 the property of an individual in any way, shape, or form ever again and with the understanding that income is property. And what this would do is force the United States government and the, and the state governments and the local governments all to operate through consumption taxation, period. Either you, you have a consumption tax or you you don't have any money, period, that's it, and fees and licenses, right, um, and this could, could that be a backdoor to, like, a lot of really bad things, like, well, then we're just going to have to have a license for everything now, so we can raise some money, well, in a way, but, like, that takes a lot of upfront money, right, like you can't, like, you have to get the money to set up the Department of Licensing and stuff like that, so, that right there would be limiting. And that's, is it perfect? No, but I only get to do one thing in this scenario. And the reason I think that would make it better is government would just have to simply stop doing a lot of other things. And I think the biggest problem in our country today is that government does too much. And as a byproduct of that, the public expects too much from government. You, you, you can't find a person that won't bitch about the government. Right, But they will always defend everything you suggest getting rid of. You're like, well, what should we get rid of? And and you might find one or two things that are okay getting rid of. Like, oh, we should stop giving uh, financial aid to illegal immigrants. Oh, okay, well, they're not supposed to be here anyway. They're here illegally. And since I'm not for any of this stuff, maybe we should stop giving all this welfare money out. Oh, you can't do that. Well, then people would get jobs. No, they wouldn't get jobs. They would have no money and they would die. No, I think that no. So so you have to in some way just cease it. By the way, that would also cease Social Security. Social Security would have to become voluntary for participation. Because they could set up something that says you can you can invest your income into the government, right? Okay? So you could invest in Social Security for yourself in the future, but it would not be able to be compulsory because it is a tax on income. So, every, and every citizen then would take home 100% of their paycheck. And anything government wanted money for, it would have to at least make a case for it. In fact, you know, a perfect solution to me would be making all things the government does them have to raise their funding for it individually. In other words, even if I pay a tax. I should get a, instead of them telling me to tell them how much I owe them, if it was done by consumption taxes, I should just have a little piece of paper at the end that says, Jack Spirico paid X in federal, Y in state, and Z in local. And of that money, Jack Spirico says how much of his money can be spent in each department by percentage. Click here to do 1% across the board, whatever, you know, fine. Okay, each department says you can do whatever you want with it, voluntary, fine. But uh, I think I'm gonna put all my money into. Uh, I don't like any of this. I wouldn't have a lot of boxes to check, but many of you guys would. Anyway, with that, actually, I'd put probably roads, roads, bridges, transportation infrastructure. It's the one, one of the few things, you know. National park system, maybe depending on what they're doing at the time. Anyway, with that, let's uh. Let's get into your emails today. Again, these are emails sent to Jack at the dot com. I have a bunch queued up for you, and what I am going to try to do is cover more material with more rapidity per individual uh, story today. Sometimes that's hard because there is so much meat in some of this stuff. Here is here is an interesting one on on permaculture and and ranch ranch scale stuff, right? Good morning, sir. What factors would uh, would would you use to determine the installation of swales versus hugelkultur in a ranch-sized system? I know you've answered the difference between the two in detail and said you're going to explain it again, but where and when to use each really hasn't been discussed. Quite frankly, I don't think there are many good resources comparing the two online. Most people want to fall in the one camp to the exclusion of the other. Okay, so real quick, a swale is a ditch on contour. It spreads water out across the landscape instead of letting it run away and cause erosion and not be held in the landscape. So again, a swale is a ditch on contour. For those not familiar, that means if you're walking in the swale ditch in the bottom, you're walking a level line. And people go, well, it can't be level because my land is steep. No, there's a contour line. So think of a contour map. Look at a contour map. It's got lines on it. To show you the elevation levels, it's a ditch on that line. Or in a key line swale, it's a 1% grade. That means it drops one inch over a hundred feet. So it actually moves the water out to the ridge lines. Either one works and they're both a little bit different for different reasons. A hugel culture is where we build a mound on top of wood. Okay. And then we let the wood soak up Nutrient and uh, minerals and all types of great stuff, and it becomes a wick, and it effectively whips wicks moisture from the subsurface up into the mound, so the plants, trees, etc., planted in the mound can access it. Right. So those are the two things that the guys asking about. Now, which one do we use, and how do you make a determination? This is where you got to stop locking on the technique and start thinking about design. The answer could be we might not do either one. Okay, the technique to the exclusion of design is like saying, well, how do I make a determination whether to build with brick or steel? Well, every design is going to lead you to the best material to build with. Right? so this is the reality. I think that there is a danger that some people might do some really stupid crap. Like, this is the one everybody always wants to do. I want to build a swale, and I want to put a hugelkultur in front of the swale so it's the best of both worlds. If you do that right, it can work. You lay down some wood, and when you build your swale, you're pulling your dirt out onto the wood, and you're burying the wood. Okay, that can work. I wouldn't do it with a small swale and a big mound because, well... If you build up that much water and it starts to push into, especially a new hugel system on a major rain event, that whole thing could be a mud dam going down the hillside, right? So there has to be some engineering thought put into any of these decisions. You know, this is where people read Steph Holzer's books, who's kind of the guru of hugel culture, right? And he says don't put hugel mounds on contour, and then you see Jack put these little bitty hugel mounds on contour in my 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 little orchard, basically. Well, he says not to do that. Well, he's building a hoogle bed on a terrace on a mountainside. And he's right. If you build a bunch of dams on the mountainside on a terrace, uh, you can bring the whole side of the mountain down. Just like if you have a place that has five and six inch rain events, and you put a big giant pile of wood out, and everybody gets shovels out and digs and covers them up, and you get a big rain catchment, you can wash that down the road. So... How do I decide between the two? How do I decide when to combine the two? It's an engineering question. And it's also a goals question, right? So instead of saying, do we use Swales or Hoogle culture on this ranch, what do we want this place to do? What do we want to, to, to come from this opportunity? See, I see Hoogle culture is far more, in most instances, a piece of the design. It's not the totality of the design. I've, I mean, I saw what Seb did in Montana, but I even have to look at that and go, how grown in with unwanted plantings is that thing today? I don't know. You know, how, how do you maintain something quite like that? I'm not sure. Um, if you put enough trees and bushes on it, well, it maintains itself to a large degree. Um, but I see Hoogles is more like, since we're going to plant a certain type of planting or a certain type of small element we're going to put hoogles in for that, and they could be anything—great big ones to little bitty ones, depending on what we're trying to accomplish. Swales—I have a hard time seeing a large-scale property developed without swales. Just what kind of swales? Are they going to be big mainframe swales, or are they going to be smaller keyline swales and subsoiling? I don't know. See, this is this is why I say I try to go fast for you guys, but this this question alone could be an entire show, and I may have to just punt here to be able to do that. Um but in the end what I'm going to tell you is don't start designing a property whether it's a a backyard or a ranch of hundreds of acres with the concept of this is a, a hugel design or a swell design or a hugel swell or it's going to be this or it's going to be that start it with okay what is this property supposed to do what do I want it to produce how do I want it to move forward Here's a real-world example of something going on in the mind of Jack Spirico right now. So last week I did a show on the profitable homestead, talking about one to three to five-acre properties and how you can actually build profit centers on your homestead. And I mentioned market gardening, and somebody said, what about this Jean Bla, whatever his name, I can't think of his name, but a French name from Canada near Montreal, That has this book, The Market Gardener, and I said, basically, I know of this guy, and some of my comments are based on what I know of this guy. And people said he has this awesome book. And you should read this awesome book. So I got the book on my Kindle and I start reading this book on developing, you know, like a one to two acre market garden. Hundred foot rows is what he did, but he says they could be any size. All your rows should be the same is what he's saying. Follow me through with this and I'll get back to the original question. 100 foot rows, 30 inches wide, because all the equipment that's being made for small hand use now and two wheel tractors and stuff like that's all now designed on this 30 inch, uh, idea. And if they're all, all your, if all your beds are the same length, then all your row covers, all your irrigation line, anything that's movable would be the same length. And you can use anything anywhere. And it makes sense. And as I'm reading it, what keeps coming back to me is, blah blah blah, soil amendment, blah 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 weed, blah blah blah, pre-emergent weed control, blah 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 soil tilling, blah blah blah, start plants, blah 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 greenhouse, blah 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 hoop house, blah 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 pick, blah 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 plant, blah 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 planting schedule, blah 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 amendment, blah 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 nutrient and on and on and on. And it's just that I'm not putting the guy down because I think what he's doing is amazing, and I think if you want to be in market gardening from what I've read so far, this is your guide. And I think it can work, and it makes money, and it's a fast turnaround. It's a single season to putting some profit back into the system. And I think what the guy's written, and I'll put a link to his book in the show notes today, and his website in the show notes today, I think what he's written, you could write up a good business plan, case study with it, do some initial market discovery in your area, and go to the bank and get a loan for agricultural purposes for a two-acre farm. That is awesome. I'm also thinking... Yeah, I know he said he works 8 hours a day, you know, 6 days a week for 9 9 months out of the year, it takes 3 months off and it's not that bad. It's like normal hours it's fulfilling. That's a lot of freaking work. I mean, that's a lot of work and most of the work is involving tending, planting seedlings, seeding Weeding, weed control, soil amendment, irrigation, etc. And almost everything is geared toward the process of constantly doing something. And I, I, okay, I get that. That's how, that's how annual vegetables go because they run in annual cycles and many of them run in just a cycle of a two to three month cycle like greens and lettuces and leeks and stuff like that. So I understand that, but I don't want to do that. So as I was thinking about what I was talking about last week and all the things that could go on with that and how that was, that came in from the standpoint of somebody saying, you know, you can't raise chickens without GMO feed because you can't get it or it's too expensive. And we were talking about how to do kind of a civil pasture poultry operation where the land provides the chickens a lot of their food and therefore reduce the feed input requirements and how all that worked out and these new trays that I have from this company called Talia, these irrigation drip trays. Suppress weeds, condense moisture at night, and put 100% of the water that comes near the plant to the plant's roots, and prevent evaporation, all kinds of other good stuff. And how I might use all that together and thought, what what if I developed the design concepts for the food forest market garden, or the forest market garden, right? Instead of a a vegetable market garden, what about a forest market garden? What about taking something like the Permaculture Orchard Project up in, also Canada, by the way, uh, cool little Kickstarter right back, and the video's out now, and it's awesome. Take that and bring that down to the the, the two to three acre homestead. Now, unlike the market gardener, you're probably three-ish years out in developing a CSA, but then to tie a CSA model in that. As I thought about doing that, I realized that like a crazy zone 4 food forest, like I have over on my east pasture that's turning into a forest now, might not be the most efficient way to do that. So how could you go from This I'm coming back now, to your swales versus food culture thing. How could you go and do something more akin to a conventional orchard layout with rows that may not be straight but are evenly spaced at least, and laying out your trees and everything so that you are able to spread your harvest out over a longer period of time, etc. And when I look at that, I see it probably being done with smaller than typical swales, probably more of a key line design depending on the topography, so maybe a little bit of a 1% grade or just a straight swale system, and then but evenly placing the swales at equal distances from each other as best you can because land contours do their own thing, and then planting the system far more as a staged, layered system. So instead of really grouping your trees and shrubs together, you have a row of trees. Row of shrubs and row of understory. And then go back in as the trees mature and bring in more of your vining crops. And I'm going to stop there, okay? I'm going to stop there because I might do a show on this tomorrow and get really deep into it. But in that situation, it wasn't, well, the site should be done with swales. The goal is a row-based system with ease of harvest and ease of time stacking. So the closest thing to a row that also deals with irrigation and reduces erosion and has a good track record is probably going to be doing it with a swale-based system. Because the Hoogle system, I'm going to have to bring an awful lot of wood in to cover two or three acres like this. Now, I can make that work the way Sep did in Montana with his Hoogle system too. So now it's a matter of how do I want to manage my system? Where is my system? If I'm at the edge of suburbia, having these six-foot-tall beds may not work out real well for me. It may be too obvious what's going on. It may require too much investment. I don't know. So it may require a lot more maintenance than I want to do. I don't know. It all depends. So I'm going to design the system based on the system's goals. And, and, and a hoogle, a swale a pond, a a pit garden, a raised bed, all of these things are simply tools in the toolbox. So how do I know when to use a wrench versus a socket? Well, a lot of it's intuition. When I look at the part that I need to get onto, socket won't fit in there, so now I know I need a wrench. Do I use open end or combination? Well, I can't get the end of the open end wrench or the combination wrench side in there so i got to flip it around and use the open end wrench to get in there, right? So, again, but what am I trying to do? I want to take the water pump off the car or not? If I don't want to take the water pump off the car, it doesn't matter. Maybe I don't need anything but my hands because all I'm doing is changing a PVC valve. Maybe I need a pair of pliers to take a couple clamps off or something. So, you see how that works. So you, you're always designing to the situation. So So much for the quick answer. Let's try going a little faster with some of these other ones. So, yeah, um completely different subject here. This is from Karim. Karim says last night, a kid in his late teens and possibly some friends tried to break into my home while my wife and I were upstairs eleven p m at night. I will spare all the details, but suffice to say police were called, and the person was scared off with only a show of force ran off before the police could even get there. <laughs> what a surprise. Anyway, this morning I sat down and tried to think of why of all the homes in the neighborhood mine was selected. Here's my conclusions. Normally, a neighborhood kid comes every Saturday to mow my lawn. Kid mows your lawn? You get your lawn mowed without an illegal immigrant? How do you do that? Anyway, uh, unfortunately this week he is on vacation with his family, this being a holiday weekend and all of my neighbors having mowed their lawns in the a.m. Mine was the only home that, in addition to having lights off, had a lawn that was a bit tall. After thinking about it, this can be the only reason my home seemed like a target opportunity. So mowing your lawn is apparently part of preparedness, Kareem. I think if you live in the suburbs, uh, especially in a semi-affluent neighborhood that would be a target for break-in thieves, it may very well could be. Um, I think the big thing is not having your home look like no one's there. I, I, I think that is – I've seen enough – you know unless the person specifically targeting you know to kill or rape or something like that, what is the number one thing that people breaking into homes to steal look for, especially at night and that's the home to be empty and the absence of alarms though a lot of criminals that have specifically cased and targeted a place will tell you they don't care about alarms because they can be in and out before the police are there anyway. Uh, if they know what they're going to get. But they don't want anybody to be home. Most criminals are trying to balance a risk-reward ratio. And even if you are a scumbag and you're willing to hurt somebody, you'd prefer not to have to deal with somebody when you're looking to steal some stuff. So I, I, I think that it's more along the lines of keeping your home from looking empty is is the number one thing you can do uh, to prevent break-ins. So I'm glad everything went okay for Karim. Um, I also think that the other thing that really deters people is the concept that somebody might be armed inside, and signage indicating that uh, you're armed is often thought of as, well, then people will know you have guns, and they'll break in and steal your guns. People break in and steal stuff all the time. People break in and steal stuff all the time. The, the concept that the owners are armed and will shoot your ass is, is a pretty big deterrent, more so, honestly, than dogs. Uh, I've seen that also from a lot of of, of, um, interviews and things like that, and that doesn't need to be a great big sign like in the front lawn. In fact, I think that's a bad idea, but for instance, um, there was a a company in Jacksonville, Florida when I was a kid, I remember, called Southside Gun, and they gave stickers to all their customers. And it would say things like this: this home protected by arm, or this home or this business protected by an armed owner. And back in the day, it was still the time when people revolvers were pretty popular. So it was a revolver pointed at your ass, and you could clearly see it was loaded. There were there were little, you know, they even did that detail that you could tell that the, the the cylinder was loaded and pointed at you, you know, and said Southside Gun. It was very effective branding. And he will say, well, if you do that, then the, go- the government, if they want to go after you for shooting somebody, can say that you want nothing. No, I mean, I specifically put that there because I didn't want to shoot somebody. You know, I mean, it, the reality is if you're tried for shooting someone in defense on your own property, you've probably done a lot wrong. And putting up a, a small indicator that the ownership is armed is, is probably not really one of them. So those are my thoughts. Don't look like you're not home. Uh, let's take another one. Uh, the next one I'm going to be really quick on and some of you aren't going to like it. And I've gotten a lot of emails from it, which is why I'm going to bother to respond. So as far as who sent it, uh, a couple hundred people variations thereof. This is the biggest unstory of our time. Hobby lobby. Yes. Hobby lobby. You know, there's a Supreme court decision. There's wailing and gnashing of sheath and sounds of triumph on the other side. And this is nothing but a bunch of political bullshit. Let me tell you why. um, First of all, the entire thing has been presented to the public as an outright lie. There's no way around it now. Hobby Lobby is banning birth control over their employees. Well, first of all, Hobby Lobby is banning nothing for their employees. They're just stating what they wish to provide in their health care plan. And one of the things that Obamacare requires is that employers provide all methods of what they consider contraception with to the which these people includes the abortion pill. This is a pill that you can take after you've actually gotten pregnant that will terminate a pregnancy. That is an abortion. Whether or not we should be protecting life in its first week is a spiritual religious connotation thing that I'll stay out of, okay? But that's it it is it is Not the prevention of pregnancy. That's not what the morning after pill... The morning after pill is a termination of pregnancy. And Hobby Lobby said, based on our religious beliefs by the ownership of this company, we do not want to provide a health insurance plan that provides that to our employees. And that turned into Hobby Lobby is against women's rights. And then, okay, first of all, this pill is pretty cheap, honestly. And if a woman decided she wanted to do that, there would be nothing that would prohibit somebody with an actual job, which you would have to have to be on their thing, from going out and purchasing it for yourself anyway, right? And it, it, it no, it doesn't lead to coat hangers and all the other Hillary Clinton crap. It's, it's, it's bullshit. And. You know The fundamental question should have been in the first place, should the government be able to dictate to an employer exactly what the health care that they provide to their employees must include? And to me, no, they shouldn't be able to make you buy it, but we're there. So Hobby Lobby had this objection. The Supreme Court ruled in their favor. Here's why it doesn't really mean anything, though, to either side. The number of companies that will do this will be infinitely low And only companies that are considered closely held companies are affected by this ruling. Which means they're relatively small companies owned by very few people. And uh, this is, by the way, not about corporate personhood either, the way the media has tried to twist that. So a very small number of companies that will do this anyway. Of all the companies that would, then there's actually a very small number of people that work for a company like this that would lead an extremely promiscuous lifestyle and then opt to use a morning-after pill. So you're talking about a very small number of people in a very small number of companies getting infinitely smaller as we go down the hill. And then lastly, again, somebody that wanted this option would be able to afford it. It's not like this is an expensive thing. So there's absolutely nothing that prohibits the employee from using it in the end. Now here's the bigger thing. Most companies would not do this because it's not going to save them any money. I'll bet you it costs Hobby Lobby more money to not have this coverage. What? How is that possible? Okay, so I'm big evil insurance executive. I'm going to control the world with Aetna. Okay? That's me. And I want to make money because I like money. That's why I'm in business. That's why we're all in business to make money. But I really like money, and I like money to the exclusion of your needs because I'm a health company and now you have to buy my product because the government said so so you can wait on hold for four and a half hours and I don't give a damn and all I want to do is increase my profit margin so as the big evil insurance company do I make a better profit if I provide the uh, morning after pill or do I make a bigger profit if I did not provide it I make a bigger profit by providing it because it's much cheaper to give a lady a pill than pay for the birth and then have with her family plan this child that has all these needs and all this important and they get sick and they go to the doctor and they have well checkups and the kids are freaking expensive to insurance companies. So an insurance company just assume give you a pill and not have to cover that you know whiny cryy sick baby. They don't want to pay for that. Got it? See how it works? So this means absolutely nothing. Now I know somebody but see in the totality of the check, the right to religious freedom was protected, but no. No, it was a 5-4 decision. Roberts went over to the conservative side for once, like he's expected to, and that's what made it. And the reality is this has very little to do with anything. And then <laughs> oh, Jack Spirico has to point out to you the great hypocrisy of Hobby Lobby and all of this. Uh, it turns out that Hobby Lobby has 401k program for their employees and that about 73 million dollars of mutual fund investments in that company have been linked to the companies to provide the contraception that they don't want to provide. <sighs> So how important is it to them really? Now, here's the, here's my defense of that. Uh this of course has come out from liberal types, you know, that think Obama is God and walks on water and and what have you. Um if you're going to provide a 401k plan, you 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 don't really control the investment options very well in there and the mutual funds in that 401k plan will change the holdings that they have on a regular basis, and it may be very hard to provide a 401k plan in this day and age uh, that, that wouldn't have you know companies like you know Teva Pharmaceuticals or Merck or things like that in there. Um, so there's there's that. So I I don't know, but I mean here's the basic thing that that's just not being said by the media: Hobby Lobby's health insurance for women, their women's program has 16 forms of birth control that are paid for by the health insurance. 16 forms of birth control. I won't go through and name them because you might have to explain them to somebody you don't want to explain them to right now. But 16 forms. The only thing they objected to was the abortion pill. So this is an example of the media lying, and and then after it was over telling you this was a monumentous thing, having to continue the lie that it's some big deal because this is going to affect... Very few people and very few companies. And let's take another one. Uh, this next one I had to look up because somebody didn't include the link with their thing, but at least they put a quote in there I was able to Google. This is from Ryan in Kentucky. So, Jack, I saw this article regarding the decriminalization of marijuana in Colorado and how it saved millions of dollars and has resulted in lower crime rates. Main point of the article here. I'm going to actually pull the article itself up for you and read uh, most of it for you. So... Um, <laughs> Here it is. It's on policy.mike. Um Here's the lawless hellscape Colorado has become six months after legalizing weed. It'll all make sense in a second. It's now been six months since Colorado enacted its historic marijuana legalization policy, and two big things have already happened. Number one, Colorado's cash crop is turning out to be even more profitable than the state could have hoped. In March alone, tax and legal re- recreational marijuana sales generated nearly $19 million up uh, from 14 million in February, the state has garnered more than 10 million in taxes from retail sales in the first 4 months, money that will go to public schools and infrastructure as well as for youth educational campaigns off substance abuse. According to the latest budget proposal, Governor John Hickenlooper expects a healthy 1 billion in marijuana sales over the next fiscal year, that's nearly 134 million in tax revenues. Sales from recreational shops are expected to hit 600 million, which is more than a 50% increase over what was originally expected. Two, Denver crime rates have suddenly fallen. What? Fallen. Marijuana related arrests, which make up 50% of all drug related crime, have plummeted in Colorado. Ah, oh, well, of course there are less, there are less arrests for marijuana because you made it legal, so of course crime went, went down. Ah, oh, let me continue. Which makes up 50% of all drug related crimes have plummeted in Colorado, freeing up law enforcement to focus on other criminal activity. By removing marijuana penalties, the state estimated to save somewhere between 12 and $40 million, according to the Colorado Center on Law and Policy. According to government data, the Denver city and countywide murder rate has dropped 42.1% 42.1% since recreational marijuana was legalized in January. This is compared to the same period of time last year. Time frame encompassing 1 January uh, through May 31. Violent crime in general ha- is down about 2% in total. A major And major property crimes are down 11.5% compared to the same period in 2013. As the Huffington Post notes, this is a far cry from the wild-eyed claims by legalization opponents. The legal weed was the devil's work in Colorado would see a surge in crime and drug use. Quote, expect more crime, more kids using marijuana, and pot for sale everywhere, end quote, said Douglas County Sheriff David Weaver in 2012. Quote, I think our entire state will pay the price. End quote. Governor Hickenlooper at one point said, Quote, Colorado is known for many great things. Marijuana should not be one of them. End quote. Uh, With only a quarter of the year's data to work from, it may be too soon to definitively attribute these changes in marijuana legalization. I agree. You can't just say that this is why. But the possibility of a correlative pattern is certainly worth noting. I'd agree on that, too. I'd say what's more worth noting is, is it didn't cause a huge increase in crime like they said it would. Uh, we are witnessing the, f- the fruits of Colorado's legal weed experiment, and those fruits are juicy indeed. Of course, Governor Hickenlooper has completely changed his tune, saying, quote, while the rest of the country's economy is slowly picking back up, we're thriving here in Colorado, end quote. You can read the rest if you want to. Um, but... <sighs> you know what changes a politician's mind? Money, they sell out like that. Uh, this is going to be horrible. It's terrible. Oh, it's weird. how much money? And we get spent out on crap to control people's lives. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's good now. We like it. It's, it's you know. I still don't think you should do it, but uh, uh, it makes you know financial and legal and constitutional sense. Is that the right words? Does that? What? It, put those in the teleprompter so I don't forget. I mean, this is how politicians are. What I think is interesting is I had a conversation about this with my brother-in-law this weekend, and uh, we were talking about, I brought up marijuana and said, you know, about legalization, and we have a, uh, I guess he'd be my nephew-in-law, and he'd also be my brother-in-law's nephew-in-law, I guess is the way you'd look at it. He's our niece's new husband, who's a police officer in Colorado, and he does... More of a criminal investigation, detective level stuff. And Mark said, Well, I talked to him, and he said their biggest problem now with marijuana is people trying to bring it into Colorado where it's not supposed to be there. And they got to deal with that. I'm like, So they're bringing something into the state that's legal? That's their problem. I get it because it's costing Colorado revenue, right? It's about money. But we we started having the marijuana debate, and, you know, he was telling me, Well, you know, it, it, it used to be okay, but now they got this new hydro, and it's so strong, and it causes this and that. And I'm like, yeah, well, Everclear's stronger than vodka. He's like, yeah, but if you drink a lot of Everclear, it'll kill you. Okay. And in the end, as we went through piece by piece by piece about why is this illegal when so many other things are legal, his final defense was, but my trump card is it's illegal. And I said, so? Well, that that, that matters. Well, it matters that it is illegal from a standpoint of people that do it end up in trouble for it but it doesn't make it inherently any worse or wrong. Well, yes, it does. I said, "What well, used to be legal. He said, well, heroin used to be legal. I'm like, yeah. You know, and the world didn't fall apart when heroin was illegal either, but okay, fine, Let's, but let's not try to go there, you know, and my point was that the law can be changed. And see, what it is, is that people are so of the belief that something illegal inherently means something evil, that they, they will cling to it uh, to the absence of logic and reason, you know, hydro is stronger. Well, then people will smoke less of it. No, some people smoke a lot more of it. Well, that's their business. Well, I had this one, his one of his other defense. Well, I had this guy, and, you know, he started out smoking that stuff, and when it wasn't enough for him anymore, he went out and took other drugs. Okay, 100% of people that use drugs started out drinking water. Well, that's just stupid. Well, no, it's not. I mean, you're telling me the person that has a criminal predisposition who's willing to break the law to smoke marijuana is also willing to break the law to use other drugs. That doesn't mean that a person that's not predisposed to break the law might not smoke marijuana and not use other drugs. Well, and then this guy committed four crimes while he was, you know, on his path with this other drug. I'm like, then arrest him for that. Right? And see, it, and in the end, yeah, but it's, it's just illegal. See, and that's, okay, so a law passed by man, makes something inherently evil because we said so. And again, I'm not the advocate for marijuana legalization because I want to smoke it, nor do I think you should either. Though I will tell you this, if I end or ever end up dying of cancer and it will help me eat and live the end of my life in a more comfortable way, I'll smoke all the damn pot I want and I will not let anybody def- you know, take it away from me. I won't. If I have to go somewhere to do it, I'll do it. I think it's ridiculous that we say it has no medical needs, uh, you know, med- no medical benefits. When we have people, we clearly see medical benefits from in situations like that. And you know, you can you can prescribe them cocaine, but you know, God forbid they they smoke marijuana. But anyway, um, I think this is interesting. And I, I actually would tell you this: I think that the majority of the United States will decriminalize marijuana within ten years. The majority, I think, sadly. Some of the last holdouts will be Texas, Arkansas, Louisiana, Oklahoma. Basically the Bible Belt. Because Jesus doesn't want you to smoke marijuana. Except I've never seen the word marijuana in the Bible. I'm just saying. Let's go ahead and take another one. Um, next one here is from Peter. And I get questions on deer problems uh, with gardening all the time. So this is a proven thing now, uh, with actual results from a listener. It says, Hey Jack, I have a recommendation for listeners who live in heavy deer populations like I do and want to protect their trees. I recently planted 427 bare root, fruit, nut, and berry trees and bushes in four hoogle, four huge hoogle beds. I was worried about how to keep the deer from destroying them. I have muleys in my yard year round. Mm, mule deer, yum. Anyway, built on, um, After some long, nice researching, I found a product called Plant Sky Double D, deer repellent. It's all one word, Plant Sky with two Ds, like... Upgrade, right? Um, it's 100% organic. It claims to be the best product available. Well, they all claim that. It's essentially just dried pig's blood you mix with water in a sprayer and apply topically to your plants every four to six months. It's been three and a half months since I've applied it, and I found deer tracks wandering through the rows of trees back and forth several times, and not one single tree has been touched. Uh, no hot wire, no sp- speakers on motion centers and as a bonus it acts as a great fertilizer as the blood breaks down i just thought your listeners might want to know about this truly amazing product you can get it direct from the company or find it on amazon.com i'll look it up find a link for you guys and put it in the show notes if you want it um actually it's not just a great fertilizer as it breaks down it's a great fertilizer blood dried blood which is basically blood meal is about 12 parts of nitrogen so it's a high-nitrogen fertilizer to begin with. It also makes me think Sepp Holzer, of Hugo Culture in Austria fame... Um has this recipe that he makes by cooking stuff in the ground from bone marrow and bones and it's called bone sauce and they put this on trees over there and it keeps the deer off of their trees and like if a deer like comes up and like just touches the stuff they like freak out and they won't go near the tree again Um and it seems similar at least to me and so we have someone here anyway Peter saying that it works again the product is called Plantskyde, uh P-L-A-N-T-S-K-Y-D-D and I will put a link in the show notes to you And, uh, it's at least worth trying. Now, my, my question will be how effective will this be when we're not in a time of plenty? Deer, a lot of times, do the worst damage to trees in the winter, um, nibbling the buds and the bark and the cambium and things like that. So, uh, Peter, I'd like you to get back with me and let me know, um, next, early next spring, or even like, I would say by like January, if this stuff is still effective at that point. I think we've got a real winner on our hands, and it's a good thing to be able to recommend to people, so thanks for sending it in. This next one just points out the stupidity of government and the public education system. And while it's probably a good thing, the fact that it had to happen is one more reason, parents, to withdraw your children from public education. And this is from Florida. I guess it's good that they had enough common sense to put a stop to it, in a way. Uh, Sent to me by a friend. Read below, but it may make you blow a gasket. Florida's Pop-Tart gun bill, HB 7029, has been signed into law by Governor Rick Scott. The bill spells out what types of pretend guns pose no threat and thus are permitted in schools. Uh, Brandishing a partly consumed pastry or other food item to simulate a firearm or a weapon is now acceptable in Florida. You can chew your grilled cheese sandwich into the shape of a gun without being expelled. Possessing a toy firearm or weapon that is two inches or less in overall length. So if your G.I. Joe has a gun now, you won't be kicked out of school. Or if you glue a toy soldier to your hat as part of an art project, you won't be thrown out of school. Possessing a toy firearm or a weapon made of plastic, snap together building blocks. Okay, uh, a, a, so if you make one out of Legos, it's not considered dangerous. Using a finger or hand to simulate a firearm or weapon. So if Billy and Tommy are running around in the in the, in the playground going pew, pew, at each other, we're not going to throw them out of school. Vocalizing an imaginary firearm or weapon. So if you mention a gun, the mere mention of a gun, you can no longer be expelled from school. Drawing a picture or possessing an image of a firearm or a weapon. Man, I would have been thrown out of school all the time. I had book covers with a bunch of guns on them. Uh, They were cool. Anyway, um, using a pencil, a pen, or other writing device or utensil to simulate a firearm or weapon. The bill also addresses concerns that would go too far in protecting potential unruly or dangerous behavior by providing that a student may be subject to disciplinary action if simulating a firearm or a weapon while playing substantially disrupts students' learning, causes bodily harm to another person, or places another person in reasonable fear of bodily harm. Okay? So if the action of going is kind of like, from somebody that's playing all gangster and actually legitimately makes the other student feel like, I am threatening to kill you, then we would do something about it. Okay? <laughs> I love this because Neil's got it in yellow uh, highlighted. The bill is real and was necessary because some educators in Florida and many other places are too stupid to figure it out for themselves. No word on just getting rid of stupid educators. This is why the schools are no longer entitled to the privilege of educating your children and you should remove them and the tax dollars that go with them from the school system okay you really should they don't have the right to your children that's your right and they have they have shown that they are not worthy of the privilege of educating your children they really are not they get a lot of money taken from people against their will in the form of property tax to do this it is a privilege for them to have the ability to educate your children and be compensated quite well for it. Teachers are underpaid, Jack. Yeah, how much money runs through that whole system? And, and I, I don't want to hear any more about underpaid teachers. I, I really don't. You know, I, I don't want to hear any more about teachers who are so underpaid. Oh, my God. And when you work out what they make, they make a damn good living for any professional, for any professional, especially when they're teaching, like, second grade. I'm sorry, you do not need four years of college, advanced doctoral studies, and other bullshit to teach the second freaking grade. Technically, if you are a mature, sensible individual with good organizational skills and got an A in third grade, you should be qualified to teach second grade. Technically, you should. Anyway, all right. So, I don't want to hear that. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about how much, how many hundreds of billions of dollars are sucked through this system to employ. Millions and millions of people, and they are not worthy of it anymore. The fact that a teacher needs to be told, listen, this kid eating his Pop-Tart into the shape of an L and pointing it at somebody does not warrant anything at all. Right? See, and, well, see, that's only one teacher. Not all teachers are stupid, but the system that exists that allows for that stupidity is not worthy of your children anymore. It's not. It's not. See, if if that happened, what should happen is the teacher is going to obviously send the kid down to the office, vice principal, dean, whatever, and and then if that person at that level of employment is too stupid, that means should be fired immediately. I mean, just like if they don't figure this out, because what should happen is they should say, um, "Yeah, hold on, Johnny, just a second. Let me, let me get this straight. This is what happened, really." Okay, here's what we're gonna do. Here's the for You go by to class. I need you to wait a minute though, and you should get like uh, uh, somebody from the office to go oversee the teacher's class so that the kids are not unsupervised. I need you to go down there and take Johnny back to class and and tell Mister Dumbass whatever his name is to come see me. And in the meeting, should go something like this: Mister Dumbass, do you like teaching at our school? Yes. It's unfortunate because you've now demonstrated that you are too stupid to be entrusted with the education of our children. Um, I need you to go clean all your shit out and go see HR because you're not teaching in my school anymore. The principals don't have the authority to do that, and that's another reason to pull your kids out of school. If you have a teacher that's that stupid and the principal cannot make them go away immediately, again, they do not deserve your children. But you know what most principals could do? Um, we're gonna do an academic review of your performance, and we're gonna put you on administrative leave for a week and let you think about how stupid you are, because this was stupid. You should have done this, right? And if the principal can't articulate that, if the principal goes, "Oh, gee, he, Johnny, you made a pop tart into a," uh, we're gonna have to expel you. Call your mom. get get to get uh, people in here to evaluate you. The kid in New Jersey that was spinning a pencil, and Child Services got involved and everything else. This this system. This system has got its hooks into our youth, and it's not worthy of their time and their talent and the money that comes with brainwashing them. I know not every parent can get your kid out of public school. All I'm asking you to do is consider it and look for other options. And the more of us that do it, the weaker that system becomes. And that system needs to go away. It's going to go away anyway. There's more and more evidence that that's happening. More and more evidence that my my prediction that the entire education system is going to be gutted. That major universities will be bankrupt in the next 10 to 15 years. That public schools will close. Not all of them, but you will see like like you see companies closing, and you see like you know like a company had like 20 locations, and now they have like six. You're going to see public school districts do that. Use these big, massive public school districts that have like eight schools in their district. Eight, you know, not eight total schools. They have like eight middle schools, eight high schools, eight elementary schools. They go down to having like four for the people that still show up. I'm telling you, the, the, the modern potential for education so exceeds that at which we're doing now that the only logical conclusion is that society will move to that which is more effective and cost less money. So there's no doubt that just taking at least some of what our children are learning, modula- modulating it to where it can be learned online, reempowering parents to be part of that child's education, giving the child more choice in what they learn and how they learn it, who they learn it from, not only costs more money but works better. So the only logical place eventually to go is there. The market will drag it there. I'm just ex- you know saying those of you with kids have an opportunity to kick it a little bit toward the ditch. You know, and get it in there a little bit faster, because this is again, this is just a, a thing whose time has come. But it, when you have to pass a law, and you got to get the governor of a state that should actually be seeing the things like you know, governing his state, uh, to to basically explain to the teachers in his state, a pop tart chewed into a, a t uh, an l is not a freaking gun. and only a dumbass thinks it's a gun. So don't do that anymore. You idiot you freaking idiot i mean that's what i'd like to see the governor do that's i'd like to see the governor come out and do a press conference like that hi i'm your governor i've passed and read it all formally and we believe this is a necessary step now let me say something i didn't like signing this bill into law because it causes me to have to say something my state is full of teachers who are freaking idiots And any of you that actually needed this to not do this stupid shit shouldn't be teaching. That is all. But politicians, they don't have a stones for that. They have to pander to all the different segments of population because everybody knows everybody's teacher. Pat yourself on the back. You're a hero. You're a hero for educating second graders. Nonsense. Get your kids out of school if you can. By the way, I have a link to that story for you on the Huffington Post, and if you read the comments, you will actually find there are a few people stupid enough to actually think this is a bad thing and that you really should throw people out of school for chewing a Pop-Tart into the shape of a gun because a gun is a gun. Yeah, those people exist. Uh, But, you know, when I say the high schools and all will be closing and the educational system is going to shift and it's on its last legs and we're going to be you're just crazy. I am amazed actually with the speed at which many of the things I have been saying are going to happen this you know in the coming years are happening like this year and and much faster than even I had anticipated. How about this from Brady in Florida, uh, Brady in Texas, I guess he was in Florida. During a recent business meeting with some people from Tampa, we were socializing afterward and they mentioned something about one of their kids going to an online high school. They were very impressed with it, and said so their kid didn't do very well in a traditional classroom setting, but has really come into their own now that they're attending an online school. And the school's motto: Any time, any place, any path, any pace. One day when I meet you, I'll find where you're hiding the crystal ball. Thanks for everything you do. When I first started listening a few years ago, there was an instant connection. Liked your approach without all the fudge, just common sense approach that will help no matter what comes along. Having been through Hurricane Katrina and feeling helplessness that came along with that. Your message really resonated with me. I was, uh, and I was way more prepared than many of my other folks in South Louisiana. Thanks again for what you do, and You're making a difference. Brady in Texas. Cool, man. Well, thank you, Brady. Um, but he has this link that I'll put in the show notes, online high school, um, Florida virtual school. There's still time. Don't delay. Create your summer schedule today. Is that, happy little girl pointing at a uh, a watch or a, an alarm clock with an old style one with the bells on top and i wonder how many kids know how to work that anyway um it's it, it's an interesting – here's what it says, F F We're glad you uh, – what's FLVS? We're glad you asked. Florida Virtual School is a public school, but as you can probably tell, we're not just any public school. We're online. This means no matter where you live, you can access more than 120 courses from geometry to AP art history and everything in between. What's more, our courses are just as real as the dedicated – As the dedicated certified teachers who teach them, FLVS is where you go to learn on your time and your schedule, no matter what kind of student you are. Public, private, or homeschooled students from kindergarten to 12th grade can take virtual courses whether they live in Florida or not. Just getting started with online learning, we're here to help. For more information about FLVS and virtual learning programs available to you, click here to learn more or just give us a call. Huh. Now, let me see if I can start to go forward with how this is going to start happening. The first, see, what they'll tell you is these these poorer school districts, Jack, in your model, they're going to be the ones that are going to suffer the most. No, they're the ones that are going to bail the first. Well, And how does that work? Well, let me see if I can help you out with this. The majority of people in America today do have Internet access and a computer in their homes. Uh, this is from the, the what we consider people living below the poverty level all the way to the affluent. Most people do. And computers are getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. So, it, because of Florida, the first thing I thought of was when I was out there at Sanibel Island, which is where my wonderful wife is on her way to her, with her sister uh, right now, by the way. Um, when I was out there and we were talking to, to Travis Fox, who lives there. About, you know, buying land on the water, but not paying like a million dollars for it out on the island. And talking about like Pine Island. He said, well, the problem with Pine Island is the schools. You know, if if you live out there, it's pretty decent. And there's some bad areas and good areas. But in the end, sooner or later, your kids have to go to the school. And the schools have a lot of drug problems and all this. So, let's see. I'm living out on the water on Pine Island. I got my house. Got my boat. Got my kids. Living the dream. Florida subtropics fishing, what have you. My problem is that my kid has to go to this school with the kind of kids I don't want them hanging around with and it's a poor performing school, etc. Okay, now, let's flip that over to a totally different scenario. I'm a parent that actually gives a shit about my kids I work as hard as I can. I try to get them by, but we're living in a mobile home somewhere, uh, kind of in a seedy part of town, but it's what I can afford. At least I'm keeping a roof over their head. And my biggest concern is that you're going to school with these other kids that are in the drugs and stuff, and the school has terrible performance and things like that. Okay, or, or I live in the projects, right, over in the downtown area, in an urban uh, area, and the same problem with the schools, but a different scenario. And all three of those people probably have internet access. And wait a minute. You mean my kids can go to school on a computer? Yep. And they'll get the best teachers versus whoever they draw? Yep. And if it's going a little too fast, they can just slow down. And if they feel it's too slow, they can speed up? Yep. Why... Wouldn't you? And wouldn't you think that the people in the shittiest schools would be the first ones to extricate their children and put them into a program like this? Well, they're all horrible parents and they don't care about their kids and they're not involved and shut up. Shut up. If that's you, just shut up. You're full of crap. For every shitty parent, there's, there's 20 killing themselves to do the best that they can, and they just don't know how to do any better. And the teacher's like, oh, the parents don't care. Bullshit! What an excuse! What a bullshit excuse! No, you have one or two kids disrupting your whole classroom, and their parents don't give a shit, and you can't do anything about them, so you make them an excuse for the other 28 kids whose learning suffers. Because you can throw the kid out of, out of the classroom for a Pop-Tart, but you can't throw them out for being an actual disruption in the classroom. And those of you that don't like me, they're teachers. How, how true is that? How true is that? So the, 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 the people that have students in problem schools will be the first ones to extricate them into these online programs. And, you know, I don't necessarily think this is the solution, but what will happen is they'll say, oh, it's not available to all children. Well, it costs a lot less money to give a kid a two or $300 laptop, this is plenty good enough, and provide them 1495 DSL from frickin the local phone company than it does to provide for them in the school. So what will happen is there will be charter programs for children that have, under a certain threshold of household income, that want to go online, that can't go online to provide money for them, and it will actually save taxpayers money. I actually think if you actually give a shit about your kid enough um, that you want them to have an education, you can find a way to provide internet and a freaking computer. In this day and age, this is not nineteen eighty-five. Right? When it was computers were expensive and limited in capability and stuff. In fact, let's see right now, if I just needed a basic computer, I can run open office to do all my work for that's free for download. And I need a browser so I can log into the, the school's website. And I need a basic PC to be able to do that. What do you think I could get one for? Well, I mean, I can get like a refurbished Chromebook for like 130 bucks. So, I mean, there's that. But, you know, we don't – let's look at okay, – I'm on Tiger Direct looking right now to see. Because that's the best place I know for low-cost uh, computers. And uh, I, I don't want to go that low. So – this one's okay. Here, here we go. This would work for any kid, especially in like you know, grade school. Um, Dell D630 Intel Core Duo, two gig of memory, 80 gig hard drive, 14 one inch uh, monitor, running Windows 7 Premium, 179 bucks. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> I, I, I just don't think that's that much of a hurdle to educate a kid with anymore. Is that what I would probably buy my kid? No, I'd probably spend a little bit more money, but you can get a computer. And if there was a market to sell computers at that price for educational purposes, there'd be a lot more options really, really quick. Um, you know, I, I, I just think that uh, here's, here's a Dell Latitude D630 Core 2 Duo, Windows 7 Home Premium, 180 bucks. 2GB of RAM, 80 gig hard drive, Windows 7, Intel processor. I mean, it's not that much money now, is it? I mean, really? Oh, but some parents, they don't just have $200 laying around. Yeah, what's it cost to fill out that, to buy all that shit on that supplies list you get every year that includes crap for other students that don't bring theirs? What's that cost? Huh? The, the, the scam list? You know the one I'm talking about. The one you get every year for your kid. It says X number of notebooks and all that shit. How much does that all cost? That that, that that whole industry is a scam. I remember being a kid, half of the shit you were supposed to have, you never used. Absolutely never used. I know all the crap I bought for my kid over the years off those lists, you know. I have to have it or I'm going to be in trouble. Oh, damn it, Just it's less expensive to buy it and give it to you than listen to you whine. Here. And, and you go six months into it and you, you can go look and there's a stack of notebooks and crap that have never been opened or used. And they're not going to be in folders and all kinds of other BS. Right, So so don't tell me that the average student isn't expected to spend a couple hundred bucks on supplies to begin with when we could be doing everything on a dad-gone laptop anyway. And there's schools giving the kids laptops. Oh, by the way, they're using them to spy on them at home. They get caught doing that. Right? But there's like Laptops in schools. I mean, think about this. Even just from a from a standpoint of cost, giving kids a good, decent laptop could be done for 250 or $300, right? Not going bottom of the barrel like I did schools with their purchasing power, buying it with warranties and everything else. two to 300 bucks. Just going to soft copy textbooks will save the school more than 200 bucks per student. Those damn textbooks are scams. They're expensive too. Why the hell are we killing trees and printing big giant books and charging kids for putting too many pencil marks on them today? when we could have searchable textbooks available at their fingertips, on all, even if we stayed in school. So this is what I'm saying. Everything that you're seeing now is leading toward this world that most of you still think I'm crazy when I tell you it's coming. It's coming, the closing of schools. And God, bring it faster, please. Uh, let's move on to something different. Actually, no, as I go into my queue, I see this other one on schools, and this is... Uh, <laughs> I, I I'll leave the education sector after this I promise but you have got to freaking hear this one this is one of those ones that you go really and if it wasn't from an actual news channel um you you'd really wonder if this is even even real um, actually it's from Fios one which is uh, uh the verizon uh, news channel for files so uh let me just cue this up for you. Wait to you hear this crap.
1: A Long Island teacher says that she was disciplined by her school because of her students' performance. But it was not because they got bad grades. It's actually because they were doing so well.
0: That's right. one's Elizabeth Sob spoke with the teacher today and has the
1: story. I think you're doing a fantastic job. This comes from my principal. Vula Coyle just wants her job back. I believe that um, I, I'll be most effective teaching children. That's what I meant to do. The 17-year teaching veteran says she prides herself on pushing her Rame Avenue fourth graders to reach for their highest potential. I'm outspoken. I advocate for children. But she says the East Rockaway School District would rather she aim a little lower. I've been told um, on one occasion by my principal to dumb it down. She says students don't perform as well when they get to fifth grade. That causes those teachers to get less than effective ratings. Since teacher rating system, has come into place. The East Rockaway School District, in my opinion, has been gaming the system. They have been promoting um, position of mediocrity. She refused to, and she says that's when the district launched their campaign to fire her. Last year, she alleges the district accused her of helping her students cheat. Then in April, the district reassigned her to clerical work. I spent many nights crying um, when I was removed from my classroom. Just thinking, I'm not going to see their little faces again. I'm not going to help them grow. Coyle was exonerated in June. An arbitration board said the district didn't properly investigate the allegations against her. Though she's been told she isn't going back to the classroom anytime soon. And she isn't taking that lightly. Coyle says if she's not reinstated by September, she'll sue. I also hope that it'll keep some administrators off that bully pulpit from doing this to other people. To think twice about damaging um, a person's career just because they're doing the best that they can for all the students involved we reached out to the east rockaway school district who didn't respond to our requests for comment in carl place elizabeth Saab, fios one news
0: um yeah you can't fire a teacher for being so stupid that they think a Pop-Tart gun is dangerous and, and, and screw up a kid's life over it. You can't fire a teacher dumb enough to get rid of a student from the classroom and, and cause CPS and psychological evaluations of the child because he twirled a freaking pencil but you can figure out how to fire a teacher because her students did too well. Yeah. Why are we... And here's my thing. Here's my message to this woman. Please, somebody get this message to this woman. That school should not reinstate you because you shouldn't want to be reinstated there. You should sue them for wrongful termination. You should, because you were wrongfully terminated. You should take whatever financial reward you get from that. You should invest it into yourself, and you should empower yourself to become an online educator. And you should take that gifted... Ability that you have and make it available to far more children than you ever could in a classroom situation. I know that you actually like the day-to-day interaction with children, so what you can do is offer personal tutoring services in some of your multiple, in much spare time that you'll now have available to you. You see how that works? Because this place doesn't deserve this teacher any more than that place deserves the student's who are being screwed over by getting rid of the good teacher. And I want you to see the dynamic that's out of play. Here's what happens. So I'm a fourth-grade teacher. I'm Mr. Spirico, and I'm really good. And I challenge you, and I push you further than most do, and I I, I I I get you to get better grades, and I expect more of you, and I hold you accountable to it. And because I'm a gifted teacher, I am able to make you learn at a higher level than you thought you ever could. And then you go get Mr. Dumbass for fifth grade, and Mr. Dumbass is like... Just do your work the way I tell you to, and don't worry about it, okay? And then you get poor grades. Because though I was able to teach you at a higher level, when you went to fifth grade, you had new material to learn, and you'd become accustomed to a good teacher, so you're going to perform poorly under a poor teacher, okay? Right? And so you do, and then that teacher gets a lower review, And can't use the excuse of, well, I got the dumb kids, because when we actually look at the children they're teaching and we see their grades from the prior year, we see a decline in performance as they move into fifth grade. And you can say, well, this kid's not dumb. You're just a crappy teacher. Oh, that's a problem. We need to get rid of the good teacher. And for the principal to tell her to dumb it down... I'd love to get that principal on this show for an interview and talk to her about why it would be a good idea for a teacher to dumb down their teaching, to teach at a a poor level. But cowards don't ever face questions like that, do they? They do what they said at the end of this little piece here, refuse to comment. I'd refuse to comment, too, because... (laughs) <laughs> there's an old saying that's just so fitting here that at least they're smart enough to follow. It is better to be silent and thought a fool than to open one's mouth and remove all doubt. Now let's move on to something different. So here's another one of these evolving stories that I've called almost to the point where it's a little spooky for me to be this, this accurate. Beginning of this year, I told you, get ready for a wholesale attack on Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, And it came, and then by the end of March, beginning of April, I said, it's over. It's done. White flag's going up. It's not working. Um, Get ready to see governments get on board. Get ready to see companies get on board. Get get ready to see, like, there'll still be some stuff out there in the media, because not everybody gets the memo uh, on time, you know, the TPS reports memo, uh, to stop demonizing Bitcoin and start making it look a little bit more mainstream. Uh, And you got to have a little bit of it out there in case you change your mind, but in general, that 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 now we are going to move toward wholesale acceptance globally of Bitcoin. And uh, you'll see co- countries with their own version of Bitcoin. And one of the things that happened early in the year, that people were like, especially the, the haters of Bitcoin, said, see, it's a scam and it's going to go down, and it did make the price go down. And oh, it's crashing was Russia came out and made it illegal. Russia said you can go to jail for using Bitcoin, and the thing was Russia didn't actually do anything. Russia said we already have this law and when we look at this law, Bitcoin's clearly already illegal in Russia because it's a competing currency. So, the last place that would embrace cryptocurrencies would be the former Soviet Union, Russia, right? I mean this the, you know, I mean you you can't possibly have Russia accepting Bitcoin. They're the ones that came out and said we have made it illegal. Yeah, okay. Here we go. Russia may legalize Bitcoin, Bank of Russia dep- Deputy Chairman. Yep. Um the Bank of Russia has signaled it is ready to legalize the world's first mainstream cryptocurrency despite the big risks and setbacks of digital money's experienced. The bank's recognition means it can we can better regulate and even collect tax. Quote, we advocate a careful approach to Bitcoin and are monitoring the situation along with the Bank for International Settlements. Ga- Gazeta.ru quotes Gregory Lontovic, the Bank of Russia's Deputy Chairman, speaking on Wednesday at the Annual International Banking Congress in St. Petersburg. Quote, one can't ignore this instrument. Maybe this is the future. End quote, Lontrovsky added Mr. Lontrovsky said the Central Bank of Russia is studying Bitcoins together with the government. Quote, maybe at some time we'll take a decision about the legislative regulation of this question. And quote, he said. The bank deputy chairman's comments contrast with Wells' previous stance toward the risky currency, which is often obtained illegally and used for money laundering. In February, Russia's prosecutor general issued a ban against any sort of monetary substitute for the country's official currency, the ruble. Bitcoin's in theory offer people simpler and cheaper way to pay for goods electronically. However, its emergence as the first mainstream virtual currency has meant uh, many obstacles, including theft and the use of sex and drug trafficking. And it, there's still some so there's still some slamming of of Bitcoin. Of course, this is on Russia Today, uh, rt.com. And uh, you would expect that a little bit at least, because we're not sure what we're doing yet, you know. And this is a, as much as I actually appreciate some of the news released by RT, it is still a Russia propaganda machine, just like you know CNN and Fox News are U.S. propaganda machines. Fox News, is like U.S. propaganda. They hate the Democrats. Oh, you have little knowledge, anyway. Um, so they still take stabs at it. But the banks basically saying, yeah, maybe we need to legalize this. And then the is to Bitcoin. Well, it's risky. How's it risky? Well, it changes in value. So does gold, so does silver, so does the dollar against the euro, the euro against the dollar, the the yen against the yuan, the the dollar against the peso. They all fluctuate in value. Well, it can be stolen. Cash can be stolen. Largest crime in the world today is identity theft and uh, the theft of money electronically in dollars and euros and pounds. So I use it for buying sex and drugs. Cash, checks, money orders, all used to buy sex and drugs. It's not traceable. Cash isn't traceable. So, I mean, actually, Bitcoin, if you set up a system to trace it, actually is far more traceable than cash. So, I mean, see, like, it's like none of the objections actually stand up. It's, they don't like it because it's not theirs. And now, here's what they're all trying to figure out. How do we, how do we get a piece of this? We, we can't make it go away. Major brands around the world are accepting it now. People are buying gas with it. People are getting their salaries paid in it. How do we, how do we co op this thing even though we don't own it? And what's going to happen is virtual currencies backed by nations. They, instead of trying to make Bitcoin illegal, what they're going to try to do is obsolete it. By saying, why would you want Bitcoin when you can have Moscow coin or Swiss coin or Iceland coin or Austria coin or US coin or Canada coin or Mac coin or whatever. I mean, this is what you're going to see is, and you say, well, why would they do that? Because, you know, right now your money is basically electronic, but this way of sending money around and it, you know, wow, they could really actually see everything if they set up their own network and people used it. So you gotta watch for it. But then there's also the competing nation concept. So right now, let's say I want to open a bank account in the Bank of Switzerland. If I'm from Australia, it's not hard. If I'm from the United States, it's all but impossible. But if Swiss the Swiss government issued Swiss coin and allowed it to be freely exchanged with Bitcoin and let it float against Bitcoin in the open market, and I was a U.S. citizen holding Bitcoin, I could just exchange my Bitcoin for Swiss coin, and effectively finance myself under Swiss management. So I could take under a greater vote of confidence in the Swiss government than my own government and house my money under the Swiss government, which is just as good for me as having a Swiss bank account, except I don't have the interest payments. But I might just figure out a way to do that too if I were the Swiss government the Icelandic government or something like that you know holding Swiss coin comes with a, uh, a return so yeah there's a finance and transaction charge, but we pay uh, our prime interest rate uh, to all holders of Swiss coin uh, of all types the Swiss coin itself could be actually built with the ability to factor interest in over time what that's crazy talk no it's not. So let, let me think about that, how we could do this right So, if I am a foreign government and I want to encourage you to do business in my currency, I could basically say if you if you own my currency, you uh, effectively are banking in my nation and will pay an interest rate of one percent for holding my currency versus another nation 's currency or whatever it is, and then currencies will have to compete on interest rates too. So I say, okay, well, then how do I, cause, you know, I can't have a bank account. Well, we don't care if you have a bank account, which is right into the algorithm that Swiss coin or Iceland coin or, you know, uh, Rus coin, right, pays it, pays it a dividend that comes right out of the network itself and will just add to the value of the coin that you hold, uh, a, a coin 3.0, if you will. That can't be done. Of course it can. Anything can be done. It's just a computer algorithm. And and people say, well, like okay, well, Jack, all the things you're saying now are proof that Bitcoin is just like tulip mania and hyperinflation. And no, no, no. If you build a coin system like Bitcoin is to have a cap and fractionalize thing, you can only ever have so many individual units. You permanently cap the total, so it actually holds inflation better than any central bank can ever be expected to do so. And if the currency becomes too powerful, which is the argument against gold, you fractionalize down to a level at which there's enough individual units to spend, but yet the totality of the currency holds its value. I mean, I've said this before, but whoever created the bitcoin algorithm actually understood money better than i do and i understand money pretty damn well um it's kind of phenomenal how well it works and this is what people do not understand all money is is a form of accounting it's an accounting formula right because the dollar i give you for a coke for instance is only so that you can go and buy more syrup and soda water to make more coke or so you can pay your employee that pulls the, the lever and gives me a coke it's not the dollar in of itself, whether it's silver, gold, a seashell with a hole in it, or a bitcoin, a piece of copper. It doesn't matter what it is. It itself is not the money. The economy is the money. The dollar is how we do accounting. So we keep a track record of who bought what from whom and how much energy they're now holding that can be expended to purchase from somebody else. That's all money is, is an accounting methodology. And you could try to make like gold has this intrinsic worth, but it really doesn't. Gold is, in itself, is not really worth much. Now, we in society have assigned it a value based on a collective agreement, uh, dare I say, almost a delusion, and I own, that's not against gold, because I own gold because I believe the collective delusion will persist. But what value really inherently is there to gold? Gold is too scarce to be valuable for industrial applications. It's not enough of it. It's too much work. When you can use something like copper or silver or what have you to perform industrial applications, then they work better for it, so it's not really worth much for that. It looks nice and shiny, so you can make jewelry out of it. But the reality is, there's plenty of composite synthetics and other materials that could make a ring or an earring or a chain that would look just as nice as gold. In fact, it might look a lot nicer with some of the things we can do with carving and laser cutting now. So. Uh, aesthetically, it's not that big a deal. Can't eat it; it's a toxin. It'll kill you. It's it's not good for uh, like medicinal purposes. Like silver, silver has you know antimicrobial functionalities and things like that, and helps with sterilization and things like that. So, it, it, silver does that. Gold doesn't do any of those things. I can't make a. It's not like uranium. I can't make a nuclear power plant or a bomb out of it. It's it's a soft, malleable metal. Like, lead. Why do you think all of the alchemists wanted to learn how to turn lead into gold? Because it was the closest thing that they could look at and compare two metals and say, well, this is a lot like this. Gold is actually inherently worthless as a commodity. It is one of the most worthless substances on planet Earth. The only reason it became a store of value is a scarcity and a universality. So in other words, if we purify gold to a certain refined status, then an ounce is an ounce is an ounce is an ounce. So it made a good system of accounting. And then man, because it was used as a system of accounting, began to covet it because it represented wealth. So it gave a greater perceived value. But I've challenged so many people to tell me gold has intrinsic worth and only gold is money to please tell me one thing gold does that's not psychologically powered that nothing else does. Tell me one thing you can do with gold that no other material in the world of lesser cost and of lower resource need to acquire can do. And the answer is they can't. Silver can do some things that almost nothing else in the world can do. There's certain electronic things that copper just really won't work for. Especially as you get into processors and things like that. There's applications for, for, for silver and electronics that copper can't come up to the level doing. So companies spend more for just those one or two things to do it with silver. There's nothing that gold can do like that that silver can't. Silver is used in the medical industry because of what I said earlier. Gold is not. You can make jewelry out of gold, but again, I can make jewelry out of steel and actually make it look beautiful. We could we can do things with electroplating today that will give you a gold that looks more lustrous and beautiful than real gold. Or look exactly like real gold. And we can make that ring out of silver, which actually has intrinsic values. has things it does for us in society. Oh, but it's silver, so it's not as pretty. Really? Then why does a platinum ring cost more than a gold ring? Oh, platinum? (laughs) Platinum has industrial applications, like catalytic converters. So platinum actually has things that it can do that nothing else really that we know of, certainly for less cost, can do well. But gold has nothing that it can do that can't be done by something else for less money and less investment of resources. It is only that man has made it a system of accounting. And if man turns and decides to make a virtual currency the system of accounting of choice, then it has every bit the staying power that gold does. Especially if it's written in with a known finite amount of reserves and capped. Now, here's the thing. I don't think governments can be trusted to do that. That's why I think things like Bitcoin are better left not touched by government. See, the Bitcoin algorithm is done. Can't, somebody can come out and make a competitive version, and instead of making a clone, like all the things like Litecoin and Dogecoin and stuff like that, these are all clones of Bitcoin. They're, they're, they work the same way. They might have a different flair or marketing, but they, they're they built on the same base. So, But so someone could write a new base code, that changes the rule about Bitcoin and come out and make a case for it and, and go f- ahead and and, and and prove it to be more valid or be judged by the market to be inferior. But government could write you know U.S. coin, right? And they wouldn't call it that. They'd call it like dollar-dollar or something stupid, right? And, and they could do it in a way that gives confidence to the market and actually cap themselves and truly cap the monetary supply. And do a cap and fractionalize. But if they ever got into a bad way and they needed more money and they couldn't just make the computer spit it out, right, then they could just say, well, since we're the government, we created this, we'll just create a new dollar-dollar coin, whatever, and we'll just change the rules now. So government could reissue it and mandate it. Well, the private sector has to make a case for it. So anyway, Bitcoin... And virtual currencies are the future of how money will change hands in the world. Uh, there will be options that will be very, very public and options that will be very, very private. The genie is out of the bottle. We cannot put him back in. So government is moving to compete with versus get rid of virtual currencies. The other option, and this may be more valid for government, is government may create government vaults for your Bitcoin and say, why not have the best of both worlds? The government will say, we have created Coin Bank US, or whatever. And you can deposit your Bitcoins, and your Litecoins, and your Duckcoin, and everything else. And we won't guarantee the safety of the investment, but we'll guarantee the security of the investment. Should anybody be able to extract your Bitcoin uh, without you being stupid... You know, someone breaks in and hacks in and takes it, we'll replace it. They might do that. As long as they create the tunnel through which the money flows and they can see it and tax you for it, they don't care. See, the government controlling a monetary supply has always been about them siphoning value out of it. They do it through taxation. They do it through monetary inflation. See, if they create a holding cell for your Bitcoins that you voluntarily put them into, well, they get the best of both words. They continue to be able to manipulate and fluctuate the dollar or the new version of the dollar, which we'll probably see within 15 years, or they can take suck money out of your Bitcoin. They don't know what they're going to do yet, but they know they can't fight it. And they've given up. And Russia setting up a white flag here, at least talking about setting up a white flag here, is the first step in that direction. If Russia does it, it's done. And I'm telling you, by the year's end, you're going to see either some sort of vehicle for Bitcoin or a virtual currency out of either Iceland or Switzerland or both. I'm telling you right now, one of them's going to happen. And if it ain't by the end of the year, it will be early, early in 2015 that I'll say that that's going to happen. Unless something derails the shit out of that. I mean, that's I'm putting my neck out there when I give a timeline. I, I usually don't do that, but... I have knowledge from different sources about what's going on in both of those countries. And, and the Swiss government is all over this. And they are trying to figure out how to do it in a way that's best for Switzerland. That's something Switzerland's always been pretty good at. Uh, let's go ahead and take something different. So I, I want to go like totally out into left field with a totally different topic just to change things up a bit here throughout the show. But uh, before I do, I just want to point out the reason Russia's doing this Because when they banned Bitcoin, somebody in the finance ministry and the banking ministry and all got together and said, so is this ban working? And they all said no. They said, well, who's using it? We don't know. How do you know they're using it? Because we know they're using it. What do we do about it? There's nothing we can do. Okay, we need to bring it up. If you push something into the black market, you can't control it. So anyway, now, totally different. Jeff from Nova Scotia, Canada says, I have eight Rhode Island red laying hens for about a year. I purchased them at about 20 weeks old, and so they were laying consistently within a month or so from the date of purchase. We average about seven eggs per day and are able to sell three dozen eggs a week. Use the rest for ourselves. I would like to increase our flock to around 25 birds this year, more within the next year. My question is... How will I track the age and laying efficiency of each bird? If I put 16 hens of the same breed into one area with my existing hens, how do I tell which hens are tapering off their laying frequency and need to be culled with banding the birds with some form of color-coding work? I'm a long-time listener. Thanks for all you're doing, Jeff from Nova Scotia, Canada. Yes, I would say leg bands are the way to go, and... A, tracking down to the individual bird as you get up over a dozen or so birds is, is difficult. I mean, the reality is you look at your total number of birds and you should get seven to eight birds per ten hens. Seven to eight eggs per ten hens on average. And you're going to have these times where the laying dips. Certain times when it gets really, really hot, sometimes they back off a bit. And, and times of the year when... The, the lighting is reduced. So the total hours of daylight are reduced. You can put some lighting in your coops and all, and that keeps them laying to a degree. Um, but really, you know when you're starting to see a decline in laying. And the whole reason to go with larger flocks is not only to get more eggs, but to diversify the risk of some birds going off and coming back on. But when you get to a point where you have several different uh chicken generations you have some three-year-olds some two-year-olds and some one-year-old birds and your total laying significantly drops number of eggs per day versus number of chickens that are hens you know something's up and some of the girls just aren't producing anymore and um, but here's some fundamentals that'll help you make your decision chickens go through molts um, they usually will molt the first time at about 18 months old and when they have their first molt uh, they're going to drop a lot of their feathers and then grow new ones and they are going to take up to three three and a half months to do this the hen will slow down production on eggs as she goes into the molt then she'll stop laying eggs and then she's coming out on the other side she'll start to lay again a lot of full-on poultry producers that are producing eggs totally for the profit mode will start new chicks at the point where their, their existing flock is 12 months old so that they're hitting the 6-month mark right when these girls are going into molt and you cull everybody. That's how a lot of people do it. I think it's a bit wasteful to have mature birds because when they get out of that molt, they'll start laying again. They'll usually lay larger eggs, and they usually produce pretty well in their second year. And it's about the time they hit that second molt, okay? And they'll do this every year. So about a year after the first molt, they'll have a second molt, all right? And when they have that second molt, after that molt, they may lay some more eggs from you, but their their laying frequency really goes down. So when when we look at that, you're at a year out. So now you're at two and a half years. So to make this simple, a bird that comes into production. Let's say June, or you, you, a bird that you buy and put on the ground as a baby in June of 2014 will have its its first molt about December of 2015, and then will molt a second time in December of 2016. And that would probably be the ideal time from a production standpoint to call them. So, And here's the thing. You might have one or two older birds that are still laying pretty good-ish, but the easy way to handle this as you move it to more birds is you band their legs and just band everybody the same color that's from the same year. And then you just know. And you might have some staggering, so you can band them at half-year frequencies. So right now I've got birds of multiple-year frequencies. But I also know that, you know, three years out, they're pretty much all coming to the end. Because the only way you can really tell who's laying and who isn't would be to subdivide into groups of that year, confine them, and see how many eggs you're getting. And and I mean it's like to me it's too much work. This is why I think it makes sense to use birds like you have, like Rhode Island Reds. They're a decent sized bird. Buff, orpingtons, brahmas, things like this that lay good, that maybe are not as heavily, heavy layers as leghorns and production birds, but they have a much better carcass, so that you're just okay with culling. And we don't have to cull everybody at once, we can just say, like, okay, um, we have 25 birds from the, uh, that are, uh, vintage, uh, 2012, and, uh, they've, they've pretty much done their thing now, and they all have blue bands. So for this year, every time I need to get a couple birds for the pot or for enchiladas or something like that, and anybody with a blue band has the potential to go. And if I get toward the end of that cycle of that year where I know these birds are, you know, now these birds are three and a half years old, i got to have blue day. And on blue day, everybody left goes to make room for new babies. And that's just the life of a laying hen. And if you think about it, it's a better job than being a meat bird. I mean, you get, you know, three and a half, four years of life versus like, you know, 14 weeks, 16 weeks, depending on what kind of bird you are, 12 weeks, you know, um, and you get a good life. Now, people say, well, why not just let them live? I mean, they do eat pests and, you know, they also eat feed and a chicken will almost indefinitely be done laying at five years of age. Just like if they pop an egg out, they're like, "Whoa, what the hell was that? I didn't think I did that anymore." Okay, you know they're laying dust flakes at that point, and they can and they really stop laying after that second molt. I mean the production just drops to where it's it's no longer cost effective as a layer. Okay, so you know, you've got that bird at um, at two and a half years of age, and its productivity has seriously declined. Okay. And that bird can live to be 8 to 10 years old. And at that point, it's not going to be a very good bird as far as food quality. It's going to be very old and very tough. It's just a long time to keep a bird to have no food value. at the, Not no food value, but poor food value. Um, if you think about birds as they really age, or any animal as it really ages, it, it, it reaches a peak, a prime, and you really kind of want to harvest that animal if you're going to go past the young stage. So animals have a young like stage where they're prime for food quality and then they have a prime of health when they're the biggest, the most fulfilled, the most mature and and kind of the best they'll ever be. And with chickens, you know, they're not quite done laying when they're in that state. That's when they're a good mature bird, they're healthy, that is the time that they make the best food quality if they're not going to go in the young stage. So it's just a wiser use of a resource. Now as far as bands, the ones I like are the spiral plastic bands made for chickens. They're smooth. Um, They're designed for the purpose. If you're worried that birds can lose them, they're pretty cheap, so you could put one on each foot. I have a piece of advice for you. Never put anything red on a chicken. Never use a red one. No red. You put red on them, it it kind of attracts the other birds to peck at them, just the way they peck at a wound or something like that. So, no red. Um, I find that interesting because they don't peck at each other's wattle and comb and whatever, so it's weird. But any place else on a bird, if there's red, they peck at it. That's part of why they make, you know, watering containers, feed containers, chicken nipples, all of them red, because they just have this instinct to peck at red stuff. So, uh, no red. The other option is to use good quality Uh, zip ties, nylon zip ties, and they come in multiple colors. And that might be a little bit more affordable and a little bit easier to get on the chicken. Um, But to me, they're not built for that purpose. A lot of people do use them. People seem to be happy with them. Um, But if you miscalculate and tighten it a little too much, then as the chicken grows, if you put it on when it's younger, it can start to cut into the circulation. the, the, The spiral ones... As the chicken grows, they'll actually stretch off before they'll actually constrict the chicken uh, and cause the chicken any pain or discomfort. Uh, so they're just a better situation. The other thing with zip ties is you might set it perfectly to its size, but zip ties can and do eventually get, you know, pushed against something and become tighter and more constricted. And if you, you know, cutting one off a chicken, if you catch on to the fact that the bird is growing into it a little bit too fast. When it's still got space, is easy. But if you get to the point where it's actually making contact with the skin, it can be pretty difficult to cut off. So I just think you're better off using the bands. And then some, what some people do, they buy little bands, and when the chicken gets bigger, they replace it. I just look at it this way. If you band all your birds that you have now, even if you have multiple generations now and you're not sure who's who anymore, you band them all now, when you bring young ones in, to start bringing up that next generation of layers, and if they're little. Don't band them. Everybody with a band is this generation or whatever generation their band says. Everybody without a band is the new generation. Wait till they're sixty percent grown. Wait till everybody goes in the roost so they're easy to catch one night, and go in and band everybody. that Doesn't have a band with a new color. That's that's the easy way, uh, and it's something we haven't been doing, and we're going to have to do this now. We just have to. We had too many birds, and we've got too much of a plan going forward. So it was a timely question. Let me see if I can dig one more up, and we'll close out for today. Here's an interesting one to finish up on today because it touches on a lot of things, gardening, economy, uh, new food movement, uh, government stealing, all kinds of things. Here we go. Um, Hey, Jack, saw this article about how cities, in this case Chicago, are selling their excess vacant land lots to citizens. Many of these people are building community gardens. Do you think the the city would simply repossess the lots when the land becomes valuable again? I mainly ask because I know this is happening in other cities, and I'm trying to decide if buying a lot like this would be in someone's long-term interests. While this article makes it sound good for the urban farm movement, I feel... If when the housing market rebounds the to the point of those vacant lots turned urban gardens are now worth a lot of money, the city would simply come up with codes to ban the urban gardens in order to put pressures on the owners to sell. We'll also love to be love the part of this article where, in stereotypical NPR fashions, describe uh, Whole Foods as an oasis. Yeah, Whole and this is from Dustin. Yeah, Whole Foods is not an oasis. Whole Foods is a big food industry like anybody else in the big food industry, and they are really cozying up to the GMOs of the world. They really are. But we'll just let that go for now. Uh, I'm not going to read the article for you. You can read it if you want to. But basically. Chicago is selling lots, vacant lots, for a dollar. Here's the key. You have to live on the same block, and you have to maintain the maintain the lot. The reason they're doing it is because the city right now has to maintain the lot. And they're not doing it because, gee, Chicago's out of money. <laughs> what a surprise. Detroit, same type of stuff's going on, different program, but similar things, right? You can't... See, what you can't do under these programs from these governments is I can't sit here in Texas and go... Well, gee, I'd like 15 of those and just order them online and not even care where they are. And then when they say, well, you have to maintain them, well, I'll just hire a company to, to, to mow them once every two weeks during the growing season. right? And, and that would be legitimate, but they're not doing that. They, they don't want that type of land acquisition. They're looking for people to take care of the community that they live in. Um, so basically they're saying to the guy, you know, there's a lot across the street from you. We don't know what you'd do with it, but as long as you'll maintain it, you can buy it from us for a dollar, because basically the landowner skipped town or whatever, we can't collect, we took it for taxes, and nobody wants it. You have to understand, this lot is already, they've already attempted to sell it, like a tax sale or something, and nobody wants it. Oh, uh, can I get uh can I, got a quarter acre lot in so and so downtown Chicago? And right, can I get uh fifteen hundred dollars, fifteen hundred dollars, can I get fifteen hundred dollars? Hmm <coughs> Alright, thousand dollars, thousand dollars, can I get a thousand, can I get a thousand, can I get a thousand, can I get, a thousand? Can I get a thousand Uh No? All right, five hundred dollars $500 going once, going not at all. Okay, nobody wants it. That's what most of these lots are. They've been reclam- you know, reclaimed because of the, the, the person that owned it hadn't paid taxes on it. The house was owned outright because it was so old. Or if the bank had a mortgage on it, they were like, yeah, I don't care. Because a lot of these houses, too, like there might have been like a couple thousand dollars worth of mortgage on it. the bank's like, huh. That's not worth it. Screw it. Here and they just, they just bequeathed it basically to the city, one way or the other. The city now owns it, and that makes the city responsible for it. Kids are playing in it and all. But let's look at the totality of this and, and 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 kind of examine some of the questions from Dustin here. Basically, that which government, what Dustin is saying is that which government giveth, government reserveth thy righteth to take it away. It would be hard in this situation because. You you do have a certain obligation to the government after you purchase a lot, but it's deeded to you. You own it. And we say, well, you know, basically they're saying if you don't maintain the lot, they can take it from you. Well, right now, if you own a lot that they never sold you, it's not maintained and considered a nuisance or dangerous or whatever, they can't induce, seize those. So it's not like that's really any different. You own it, so it's yours. Now, I could see government saying, you know, there's a lot of people that are very well off today because we were benevolent at that period of time and they should pay their fair share in trying to assess some additional property tax or something on it. I don't see them wholesale taking it back. Um what I see happening though for a lot of uh, these cities is there's places where these, these houses are just shot. And it's not so much vacant loss, but people are going in buying four houses for twenty thousand dollars. And demolishing three. And using whatever they can salvage from those three to restore the best one. And then knocking the fences down in between them and putting in true, not just a community garden, but urban farms. Um, and that's happening more and more. And I, I can see more stuff like that happening. And very, very long ago, all the way back in like 2009, Jack Spirgo told you about the coming death of the suburbs. This is just part of it. This, and what I said was the suburbs wouldn't go away. And I'll have to someday. I have to like hire an intern to do nothing but go through old shows and find all these things and put together montages like uh, of, of past predictions and their current statuses, including the ones I've not gotten right yet. Or basically have said, yeah, that's not going to happen. There's been a couple where I went, yeah, I, I blew that one. Um, One was gas prices when I said when they were up at like 4 bucks, and I said they'd never see $2 again. And for a while they did, uh, and I made some miscalculations there. So I've, I've had some swings and misses, but I've hit a lot of freaking grand slams. And this is just another one. They, this is the, 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 the suburbs being vacated. And, well, that'll never happen in these, these gated communities with these uh, HOAs. And th- there's already plenty of places with houses sitting empty. What about the housing recovery? Well, there is that, but there's places like the housing recovery ain't happening because people left and they're not coming back. There's an awful lot of people, they're working again, but they, they left California and went to places like Texas and Florida to get jobs. Um, and then there's a whole piece of society living in completely unsustainable areas, and you know Lake Mead only has so much water in it, and... When certain folks get cut off, there's gonna be a lot of wailing and gnashing of teeth and another big exodus. So um, I, I see more and more of this type of thing happening and more and more people going back to the land as as a profession. Um, that's why, you know, I kind of started off today with my discussion about the forest market garden. I think is something I'm gonna look really into coming up with design and schematics for and sharing that with people. And I'll do that through Perma Ethos, by the way. Um, and I may do a show tomorrow if there's interest on exactly that. How, and I'll tell you what, would be interesting for me to do a show tomorrow. The idea is so new. uh, I would say some things that are flat out wrong in it. If you'd like to hear that, you know, because I would be basically running through the mental exercise of pre-planning a plan, uh, with you instead of actually having a plan and presenting it to you, which might be interesting. I haven't done a lot of shows like that, but uh, I don't think, uh, for Dustin's basic question, the government will take the land back. They certainly will increase the taxation on the land as the value increases, and that might be the primary way that they would force somebody out of community gardening um, uh, and, and force them to sell to someone who would build a house and then would, you know... End up with an even larger tax bill. So that may be the case. know, they sell you this lot for a dollar. Well, how much property tax are you gonna pay on it? Well, they say, well, it's, it's worth a thousand bucks. You can pay tax on it. It's almost nothing. But you know, five years from now, if the area you got that lot in starts having kind of an urban revival, shops coming, and a lot of places are starting to experience this, and a lot of times these community gardens and the the urban farms are the first step in that direction. So if city's playing the game that way, that yeah, we want to see this turn around, and they may turn back around to you and say, hey, you know, somebody just bought a lot down the street, put in one of the new, new, uh, you know, hipster urban cool McMansion style things, and uh, they paid twenty five grand for that lot. It looks just like yours, so we've reassessed your tax value. That's the way. That's the risk. And you now, the the truth is, you can always, you can always. Uh, go up and contest the taxation valuation. I've done it successfully twice in my life, and uh, you always could sell it, and if you make a profit, you make a profit, and gee, you can make a half million dollars per uh, year for tax year on real estate. Uh, well, I don't know if that would qualify, cause it's not personal residence, so you probably would pay tax on that. I'm not sure on that one. Anyway, with that, lots of stuff we covered today, a lot of ground. Hope you guys enjoyed the show, kind of a long one. And uh, with that, I'll be back tomorrow with another episode. This has been Jack Spierka with another episode of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. It's our food these days. You know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay I guess When we follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Someday we'll realize our children just can't pay. Nobody else.